Number 514, Brother Eddie has requested that we mark that song, and certainly we'll make use of that at the appropriate time this evening, following the concourse of the lesson. As you might have noted in the bulletin, as, uh, as well as perhaps some of the comments this morning that at least led in that direction, the title of the lesson this evening is The Power of the Word. And just a moment ago, we had read in our hearing one of the most encouraging, and at the same time, one of the most demanding passages, it seems to me, in the entirety of the book of Jeremiah. I would request tonight that we give some rather stern attention to the nature of that passage and use it as a springboard to help us today to ever be mindful of the power inherent in the amazing Word of God. To begin that kind of study, or at least some comments that relate to it, I have listed some things that will be of no surprise or of no shock to any of us. In fact, we appreciate so easily how highly we exalt the Word of God. We, in fact, encourage one another to be diligent students of the Word. We encourage each other to be ready readers of it, and not only to read it, but to implant it deeply within our thinking and in our heart. In fact, we even lift it up to not only ourselves, but to others as the one and only pattern that can be successfully and correctly followed to not only guide one through this life, but to have the assurance of heaven itself. We lift this book up so very highly to one another. When we come together for Bible studies and worships, it is a central feature of all that we do. Many of our songs are based directly upon it. Our Bible studies and worships are intended to be built on it as well. The Word is really an incredibly central matter, as well as it should be in my life as well as in yours. Tonight, we shall ask the following questions. What makes this so powerful? And in what ways can we use that power to our benefit because of what God says about it? The power of the Word. One of the most well-known scriptures is found in the closing two verses of 2 Timothy 3. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. As the inspired apostle thus made reference by marvelous definition to the nature of the word, what did he say? All scripture is given by inspiration of God. One of the first things then that makes the scripture so powerful is its source. It does not rest upon the weakness of man. It doesn't rest on the fallible nature of, hum of the human family. It is built upon the solid rock character of the eternality and the almighty character of God. And notice Paul went on to say that not only is all Scripture given by the inspiration of God, it's profitable for doctrine. We might well notice as we proceed through tonight and also the comments that I just made. When we come together and note the central character of the Scriptures, we use it for doctrine to teach myself and yourself and to encourage all of us in that way that truly is the right way to live. Profitable for doctrine, for reproof, and for correction as well. It is the case, as we shall see in the further parts of our study tonight, that what Paul affirmed there is in many ways a similar matter to what God told Jeremiah in that reading even before us this evening. A remarkable study I would hope we shall have tonight as we remind ourselves again and again of why this book is so special, 
why it is so unique and why it is so essential for the livelihood of the human family. And without further ado, let us then turn back to that text in Jeremiah and let it serve as a springboard to encourage us one more time in regard to the power of the Word. To revisit that scene in the book of Jeremiah, we will build a bit of a foundation. And then upon that, we will in fact build an incredible superstructure that has much to say about the power of the Word of God. I thought it would be interesting and somewhat useful to at least make note first about the nature of that power. This book does claim to be greatly powerful, doesn't it? And you and I, from our own experience as Christians, and those who are not Christians in the audience, I would hope that part of what we say tonight will encourage you in the terms of the urgency of the moment to realize what you're missing and to realize, in fact, what the power is that you haven't yet tapped into. In Jeremiah chapters 22 and 23, that bold and noble and in many ways a wonderful servant of the Lord, in fact, had these words to say. O earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord, Jeremiah 22, 29. And one chapter later, in chapter 23, verse 29, God expressly makes this remark. Is not my word like as a fire, saith the Lord, and like a hammer that breaketh the rock in pieces? Ponder especially some of the thoughts contained in that latter verse. Is not my word like as a fire, saith the Lord, and like a hammer? that breaketh the rock in pieces. It's a bit interesting to especially think about what often occurs with regard to a rock when it meets a sledgehammer. Isn't it interesting? That sledgehammer is able to break open that rock and sometimes pulverize it or crush it to pieces. The rock, you see, meets the force, which is in fact a harder matter in that sledgehammer. And the sledgehammer will burst that rock, crush it asunder, God says, my word is the hammer that crushes the rock. May we never forget then that when we open the wonderful pages of the word of God and peruse its inspired statements, we should allow them to appreciate the fact that that strength inherent in it is far stronger than any of the difficulties, any of the plights that in fact it may meet. Even the wiles of the devil stand no chance against it. Did not our Savior quote passages three times in Matthew, the fourth chapter, when Satan hurled the temptations at him on three occasions, the Lord said, It is written, it is written, it is written. Three times he quoted verbatim from the book of Deuteronomy, and three times the devil was sent packing. Ultimately, in Matthew 4.11, it says that, in fact, the tempter left him for a season. Oh, if only you and I could implant within our heart this marvelous and strong character of the Word of God, it is like a hammer that breaketh the rock in pieces. To contemplate that aspect of the Word of God only challenges us further and maybe even at times makes us a bit ashamed that we don't know it the way we wish we did. The Savior, you see, was thoroughly conversant with the sacred text. May you and I ever desire to be the same. In the New Testament, notice how similar some other thoughts along that line are stated. In the fourth verse of Hebrews chapter 4, the inspired writer made this statement. As he made reference to the Word of God, and in such clear and beautiful tones, he said, The Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, 
piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. In fact, in many ways, the opening statements of that passage state it well. The Word of God is quick, and it is powerful. Inspiration, in fact, affirmed so, didn't it? That very idea challenges and reminds us amazingly about not only the power inherent in this Word, but also the fact that he said it's living. I wonder what the inspired writer meant by that, and I have asked you to notice the very next element to which that leads. Living, which ties so beautifully to the quickening aspect as it's mentioned in the Bible. In Psalm 119, the longest chapter in all the book of God, we notice in verse 93, there the inspired writer said, I will not forget thy word, for with it thou hast quickened me. The Word of God had quickened the inspired writer. In verse 25 of that same chapter, we're reminded yet again of the quickening agency of the Word of God. That word quicken means to make alive. It means to instill within one that which formerly had been lifeless. The psalmist declared that the Word of God had thus quickened him. All of us that are Christians know well the quickening aspect of that feature. When we came forth in newness of life, having obeyed, and having in fact followed the aspect of that statement to Nicodemus, Jesus, did He not say in John 3 verse 5, Except ye be born of water and the Spirit, ye cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. When you and I thus were baptized in faithful commandment to the word of the Lord, we understood the life-giving aspect and the spiritual life we then enjoyed that we did not enjoy formerly. And it is the case that this word of the Lord is thus a powerful agent indeed. The power as seen in some of these passages remind us, as you'll notice in the next element upon the slide. In fact, let us revisit now Jeremiah yet again. Having noted the Bible statements about the power in it, what was it that God told Jeremiah in verse 9 of the opening chapter of that book? Here was an individual whom God was selecting to be an agent to that nation of Judah to encourage and to in fact rebuke them due to their error. But what was to be the agency that Jeremiah could use? That was read for us a few moments ago. God told Jeremiah when he touched his mouth, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. I've put my words in your mouth. Jeremiah was not to base his rebuke, his doctrine to Israel upon anything other than the fact that God told him, I've given my words to you. I've put my words in your mouth. It's no wonder then that just a couple of verses earlier, in Jeremiah 1 verse 7, God also told him, Whatsoever I command thee, thou shalt speak. The clear, straightforward, absolute commandment of God, What I command you, Jeremiah, that is what you're to speak. Every preacher and teacher of the Word of God knows the weight of that responsibility. To never go beyond the Word, but to speak only what of thus saith the Lord allows us to proclaim... And may we with great earnest and great power and ardency desire to do nothing else than what Jeremiah did, to state only of thus saith the Lord, what I command thee, Jeremiah, that thou shalt speak. In the New Testament, we are reminded in James 3 verse 1 
about that responsibility that rests upon those that would teach and preach the word in which we're reminded, be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater damnation. The weighty responsibility of proclaiming in truth the wonderful word of salvation. As we ponder that responsibility, you'll notice that thus what is so powerful, which the word of God is, must be handled with great care. And it must be handled with great nature of the responsibility that attaches to it. You and I know that things that have great power must be handled that way. You and I would never handle a stick of dynamite carelessly. We would never handle a bottle of nitroglycerin carelessly, for we know what might happen if we did. We could not only take our own lives, but many others around us. We could damage structures and buildings. We never handle things like that carelessly. The Word of God is powerful too. It thus must never be handled in a careless fashion, in a way that is lacking in terms of respect toward it. In fact, in regard to that point, what was it Paul affirmed in the second, in the second Corinthian letter? In chapter 7, verse 1, as well as in chapter 4, did he not make note there the fact we are not those that handle the Word of God deceitfully? Paul made it his charge and his challenge to be a rightful handler of the Word of God. And in that regard, did he not challenge Titus as well as Timothy in the same way? Study to show thyself approved unto God, he said to Timothy. In chapter 2, verse 15 of the second letter to him, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. That word of the Lord then was to be handled rightly, handled correctly and properly. And notice how easily that now is seen. You and I should never thus handle it in an improper fashion, in a way that is far distinct and different from the respect which it rightfully deserves. To handle that word of God rightly challenges us from opening cover to last to never thus be those that tamper with it. Even in the days of the Old Testament, in what you and I would call the law of Moses, in Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 2 as well as chapter 12 verse 32, there Moses explicitly as God's spokesman to Israel directly said, Thou shalt not add to it, neither shalt thou take from it meaning that God's Word was complete in the form that it was given. Man has no business adding to it, then or now. He has no business taking from it, either then or now. In Proverbs 30, verse number 6, we are reminded, Add thou not unto his words. That's a direct commandment beneath the auspices of the law of Moses, wasn't it? Neither the greatest of prophets like Jeremiah or like Isaiah or Ezekiel, none of them were given the liberty of adding to the Word of God. Friend, nothing has changed in the New Testament, has it? The New Testament, as it's provided to you and me, is complete. We ought not be adding anything to it, nor taking anything from it. The Lord affirmed, didn't He, in John 6, verse 63, that the words that I speak unto thee, they are spirit and they are life. And one last time in Revelation 22, on the closing page, if you please, of the book of God, we find the inspired writer John affirming that those who add to the words of the prophecy of this book 
to them shall be added the plagues written in this book. And by the same token, those who take from this book shall have their name taken from the Lamb's book of life. Either way one looks at it, it's not a pretty picture, is it? Either way one looks upon that saga, it is a very sad, a very regretful, and an eternally damning situation. Because on the one hand, if one's name is not in the Lamb's book of life, chapter 20 of that same book, Revelation 20, affirmed it's those whose names are there that will inherit heaven. Hence, if one's name is not there, hell must be the only place of destination. On the other hand, what about the plagues made reference to in that statement? The book of Revelation makes clear reference in chapter 16 to seven plagues poured forth as the vials were opened. What were those plagues referencing? All we need to do is revisit that book and notice that was the marvelously symbolic and figurative description of the wrath of God poured forth on any and everyone of the Roman generation and later who were not the servants of God and had not been the dutiful those to respond to Him. Thus they too received His wrath. They too were the recipients of the punishment that He sent forth. Thus one more time we see that either way, to add to His word or take from it, is you see an eternally disastrous thing. The power of the word. The human family likes to use words to change things and augment things. We in the scientific community are that way, aren't we? Some person discovers something. Maybe a generation or two later, somebody discovers something that's able to supplement it or complement it. And thus that new element is added to what was formerly known. May it never be so with regard to the book of God. Any addition to it is a perversion of it. Anything removed from it is a perversion of it. As you have perhaps often thought about yourself, there shall never be any appendices to the Word of God. It needs no appendix to supplement it, to extend it, to take it to regions where it needs to be that it cannot now go. The Word of God is complete in every respect because of what God has provided. The verbal plenary inspiration of the Word of God. This power that we've seen inherent so far challenges us to look yet again at what was told to Jeremiah. It is in that regard, might I invite your attention to notice again chapter number 1, verses 9 and 10 of the book of Jeremiah. Then the Lord put forth His hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said unto me, Behold, I have put my words in thy mouth. See, I have this day set thee over the nations and over the kingdoms, to root out, and to pull down, and to destroy, and to throw down, to build, and to plant. One of the first lessons that Jeremiah was to know, and a lesson that is certainly needful for us, comes in the opening part then of verse number 10. After just stating to Jeremiah, I have put my words in thy mouth, the very next thing that God told Jeremiah was this, See, I have this day set thee over the nations and over the kingdoms. With the knowledge of the word of God that had been now provided to him, I've put my words, Jeremiah, in your mouth. What are you to do with it? 
If you and I were in Jeremiah's place, we might ask, what now am I to do with that word, God, you've given me? Without hesitation, God says, see, I have put you over the nations and over the kingdoms. What kind of statement does that mean? Was Jeremiah to thus seek to be a regal prince or king reigning on a throne in Jerusalem? Was he to be this individual who was a judicial figure, an official who could reign thus in the physical government of ancient Israel? That's far from what God meant. Notice again the language. I have this day set thee over the nations and over the kingdoms. Jeremiah wasn't an earthly ruler. He wasn't an earthly prince or an earthly kingdom. God said this day, the very day I've put my words in your mouth, Jeremiah, I have put you in a position to proclaim loud and clear to one and all everywhere the unanswerable character of my word. Every person everywhere is submissive to it. Nobody stands above it. Nobody stands beneath it. It is the case that be they kings on the throne or paupers in the gutter, all Jeremiah need to hear the unsearchable riches of my truths, and you are over all of them. Jeremiah could thus with confidence stand before kings. He could also with great power preach to the very those in his own hometown of Anathoth, which he would do later in this same book. Jeremiah understood the challenge and power of the Word of God, didn't he? You can appreciate then the confidence that he had when in chapter 7 of this book he will stand before the officials and proclaim to them the greatness of God's command. And in fact, he even will rebuke them because they had not obeyed the Lord. It takes a bit of courage, doesn't it, to ponder standing before a king or another person in great authority and with book, chapter, and verse rebuke that man for failure to obey the Lord. And yet Jeremiah did it. Later in chapters 22 and 28 of this book, he will again stand before those who were the well-known and appreciated prophets of that day and rebuke them for also failing to submit to the very teaching and words of the Lord. It was the case, wasn't it, that Jeremiah took this challenge seriously. Jeremiah, I've put you over the kingdoms and over the nations of this earth. Later in chapters 40 and 41, he even rebuked the nation of Egypt. Here was a nation due to their failure to submit to God that he directly told them about the character of the judgment God was going to bring upon them. And in regard to Judah, didn't he say to them in chapter 7 of this book, verses 28 and 29, This is a nation that obeyeth not God. That took courage for Jeremiah to have that boldness we can see his usage of what was stated to him in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. Jeremiah, I've put you over the nations and the kingdoms. Doesn't it remind us a bit of the psalmist? In the book of Psalms, chapter 119, verse number 63, the psalmist there said, I shall not be afraid to speak before kings. Where do you and I fit into that? Should we have confidence? and the capability to stand with the Word of God and to proclaim the errors of those who are in error, be they those in high places or not. The Word of the Lord should equip us with courageousness and boldness and bravery. In 1 Peter 3 verse 15, we are reminded, each and every one of us, about the charge and challenge 
that is given to us in language like this. We are there reminded that we each should be ready to give answer to every man that asks us of the hope that is within us with meekness and with fear. Be that those that are our colleagues or be that those who stand in high places, we should with tactness but yet with firmness be ready to share with them the unsearchable riches of Christ, Ephesians 3.8, and to help them see that they too shall stand before the judgment bar of God. And as we mention matters like that, isn't that so reminiscent of the Apostle Paul? He was the one on trial, wasn't he? As he stood before Agrippa, who was a great Roman official at that point in his life. In Acts the 26th chapter, we still read that in the concourse of that conversation, it was Paul who in fact to Agrippa made the incredible comment relative to the matters that he would be judged by. We are told on another occasion that Felix trembled at Paul's preaching. In fact, as Paul preached of righteousness, temperance of the judgment to come in Acts 24, Felix trembled. As you ponder then where you and I stand with the power of the Word of God, may we ever be mindful that this power equips us to be able to be the marvelous ambassadors of heaven and to share that Word like Jeremiah did with those whom we meet. Be they those in high places or be they those that may appear to be in lower places. All have a soul and are in us in need of understanding the truth and the power of the Word of God. That takes us to the next element that God told Jeremiah. After telling him that he had set him over the nations and over the kingdoms, now we notice what was Jeremiah to do with this word that he had been given. God said to root out, to pull down, to destroy and to throw down, to build and to plant. That's a lengthy list, isn't it? And I might ask you to notice there are six elements included in it. What are the first four of them? They divide naturally into two pieces or two categories. Notice again the first four of them. Root out, pull down, destroy, and throw down. I believe each of us can be well aware that when the springtime arrives and one is ready to attempt to put out a garden... There are some things that one has to do before planting the seed. You first have to remove the debris, the stubble. Turn that ground and get it ready to receive the good things that you want to instill within it. It would do very little good to go out and throw some seed in a patch of cockleburrs. You're not going to gain too much in terms of valuable crop, are we? The ground has to be prepared. And notice here, God says to Jeremiah first, you root out. You destroy. You tear down. You've got to get rid of this idolatrous business on the part of Judah. Preach to them the word and remove the debris and the stubble. And with hearts then prepared, you're ready to instill within them the last two elements. He also said to build and to plant. When you and I understand the character thus of the word of God and the power within it, we do know that not only... Does that involve the positive reinforcement of the good things contained in the Scriptures? It also involves the removal or attempted removal by the power of God of those things that are negative, those things that are sinful, those things that are filled with wickedness and iniquity. 
And thus, as we consider our lives and the lives of others, we have every right beneath the authority of the Word of God to warn them about bad things they're doing, bad language they're using, bad places they're visiting. You've got to remove that so that you will have a disposition of person and an appropriate heart ready to have the superstructure of faith built in it. Jeremiah, you first need to destroy the evil. Tear down the evil that's now been erected in the history of Judah. Though they are my people, they have wandered far from the course of faithfulness. They've wandered far from right living. That needs to be torn down and it needs to be removed. Jeremiah, with my word, you can do that. You preach it earnestly, incessantly, ardently, daily, powerfully, and boldly. There will be some that will respond. There will be some that will hear with an ear that's proper. With all that debris removed from their life, then with your preaching of positiveness, you can help build in them the faithfulness to me and my word and a powerful life of godly honesty they shall be able to live. That kind of idea hasn't changed at all, has it? The lives of men and women are still filled with debris. And Satan has done a good job of making sure of that, hasn't he? Has brought a world about us that's filled with so many enticements, entanglements, attractions, influences, and things that can so corrupt a life. And the Word of God, if it's going to have any hope to be built within it, we might always remember the parable of the sower who sowed that seed. And might we never forget that there was a portion of that seed that fell amongst thorns. And in Luke the 8th chapter, we are expressly told what the thorns represent. It's the deceitfulness of riches and the cares of this world. Notice that though that seed germinated, it didn't bring forth anything. For the cares of the world choked it out. It's that fertile soil that brought forth 60-fold, some 30-fold, some 100-fold. And may we strive to make some hearts by the usage of the Word of God, that good soil, with the debris removed, the stumps gone, so that God's Word can be used to build and to lead to that which is wonderful and honorable. Jeremiah had that challenge. As we perhaps read that book, if you have opportunity to read its 52 chapters, and to notice the earnestness and boldness that, that was descriptive of, of the prophet Jeremiah, he truly was a magnificent preacher. And might we also remember, so great he was that in Matthew the 16th chapter, when there were those of his day who weren't yet certain who the Lord was. When Jesus said, Whom do men say that I am? Amongst the list, some say you're Jeremiah. There were some who likened Jeremiah's preaching to that of Jesus. That's a high compliment to Jeremiah, an incredibly high compliment. When we think thus about him, and we look at some of the things that God's Word thus permits in his day and in ours, we might summarize some of what we've seen in verse 10 in words like this. To destroy, to pull down, to root out, and to throw down. That directly means that God's Word in Jeremiah's day was sufficiently able to identify error. One can use the Word of God to identify error. Notice that when something is taught or something is set forth in a religious way, you and I have something to compare it to. If it does not harmonize with this, then it has to be an error. It's not the Bible that's an error. 
Jeremiah could thus use those words that God gave him to identify the false teaching, say, of Hananiah. And that he did later in chapter 28. Jeremiah very directly told Hananiah, you are a false prophet. You are saying what God has never declared. May you and I today have a similar sense of power. May we be able thus, with our knowledge of the Word of God, to kindly help address others. What you are teaching is not what is taught in the Bible. What you are proclaiming is not the Word of God. Jeremiah was able to do that. And may you and I be able to do the same. Didn't Jesus say in Matthew 7 verse 20, By their fruit ye shall know them? That person who preaches that which is false and in fact encourages that which is false in the lives of others, by their fruit ye shall know them. What is the fruit of that which is taught? Is it in harmony with the Word? If not, it must be kindly opposed. It must be rebuked. And reproof should then be usable, according to 2 Timothy 3.16, to help hopefully that person appreciate the character of that mistake and the nature of that error. That idea, as I've listed for you here, is set forth in a number of passages in the New Testament. And one that seems to ring with such boldness is found in the closing chapter of the Roman letter. In Romans 16, verse number 17, as Paul drew near the close of that letter, he left the Roman brethren with a statement that is so piercing and so very penetrating. He said, Mark them which teach doctrine contrary to the word. Mark them. That's an interesting thing. How were they to identify them? Clearly by the use of the word. Mark them that proclaim doctrine contrary to the word and avoid them. Notice we should not thus fall into the entrapments of that false teaching. We are to have a discerning eye to mark as well as hopefully to help correct them but certainly to avoid them in the sense of not allowing them to tarnish us and our faith or those whom we love, our congregation here at Pippin. The notion of marking and avoiding reminds us of the responsibility that still rests with us even to this day, doesn't it? In 2 John verses 9 through 11, that one chapter book near the close of the New Testament, we are there reminded that whosoever transgresseth and goeth onward, abideth not in the doctrine of Christ. Notice that those who transgress, they may claim they have Christ, but if they do not abide in the confines of His doctrine, John said they do not have Christ. Two verses later, He would bid them of His day and those of us too, do not bid them Godspeed, for he that does so is a partaker of their evil deeds. That's an incredible challenge, isn't it? But one which we can carry forth, just as Jeremiah did, because the word of the Lord allows us to destroy, to tear down evil, and then to build, and also to plant that good thing and the good seed of the word of God. As we draw near the conclusion of the lesson this evening, noting it one more time about the power of this word, it does help us appreciate that then those that are in error Paul, for these 20 centuries now, has had in the Word of God the statements, the very names of individuals who were false teachers in his day. He called them by name. There was Alexander the coppersmith, 
Alexander, Philetus. We notice Hermogenes in the letters to Timothy. Might we also recall that the statements made by Paul regarding these in falsehood reminds us today, we too may need to call names of false brethren from time to time so that others are aware of the evil that they are proclaiming and that they will not be accepting of it blindly as if what is being taught is correct. We certainly must ever do that with love, never with an axe to grind, never with a disposition of hatefulness or enmity, but in love to proclaim the truth and hopefully that these will come to realize the error of their pro proclamations and that they will come to accept the truth of God. As you can also see some of the verses that I have asked you to notice. It's based upon, isn't it, the Word of God and the uniqueness of that gospel. Not even the angels in heaven have the authority to change the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ was once for all time committed to the saints. Jude verse 3. Paul, in fact, wrote to the Galatian brethren and very straightforwardly to them said, Though we, or an angel from heaven, should preach any other gospel unto you than that which we've preached unto you, let him be accursed. That means again, no man, regardless what he claims, not even the angels in heaven can change this gospel. May we proclaim it in love and to hopefully upon relieving the debris of the lives of others to help build a superstructure of faith based on the character of this unassailable Word of God. To Jeremiah, God told some amazing things in chapter 1 verses 9 and 10, didn't He? These things are as challenging for us as they were to Him. May we carry it forth as well as He did. May we be the bold proclaimers of truth like He was. May we seek to remove the debris and to build a wonderful life of faith in others upon it. God's Word can do that. And may we end our sermon tonight with one final notice from the Word of, of Paul. In Romans 1, verses 16 and 17, Paul to the congregation in Rome said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. It is perhaps entirely fair to notice one of the words Paul used in that verse. The gospel is God's power to save. The power of the word stated one more time. It has always been a fascinating thing to me to notice that the word Paul used there from the Greek is dunamis, D-U-N-A-M-I-S. At least that's the English spelling of that corresponding Greek word. But that word has been carried over into English in some dynamic ways. And in fact, that word dynamic comes from that Greek word. Notice some others, though. The word dynamo. In a lab up here at Tennessee Tech, students may work with miniature dynamos that are able to do some pretty impressive things. The word dynamo comes from dunamis. And also the word dynamite comes from dunamis. Thus, literally, you, you and I can see that this is God's dynamite. It is perfectly able to blast sin and shame out of the lives of people. And it's also able to implant, after having removed that debris, the great goodness of all the hope of eternity. The dynamite of God. Have you handled it rightly? Have you responded faithfully to it? 
Jeremiah did, and for that we can be so thankful. Now the challenge rests with us. Have you and I done so? God said, I've put my words in your mouth. You and I have those words in this wonderful book we call the Bible. It's the power of God into salvation. If you've never responded in faith to it, let tonight be the night. I can assure you that you will not be the same once you've responded to the gospel. When you rise from that watery grave of baptism, knowing by the promises of the scriptures that your sins have been removed from you in terms of guilt, they will be held against you no more. You will feel clean. You will feel very worthy because of what you know Christ did for you. And you will have suddenly a new family of brothers and sisters in Christ who will be there to encourage, to support, to prod you on your way to eternity. Tonight, if you'd like to become a member of the Lord's body, Randy Bybee can't make that happen. None of our elders, Eddie, Roger, or Dennis, can make that happen. Acts 2.47 says, The Lord added daily to the church those that were being saved. Jesus can add you to His church, for He owns it. It belongs to Him. The Pippin congregation happens to be one of the elements, one of the churches that forms the giant body of Christ upon earth. Christ can add you to this body here. If we could be of assistance in your response to the gospel tonight, Jesus in that word requires that you hear the word of the Lord, just like was told in Jeremiah twenty-two twenty-nine. You must believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, with all your heart. You need to repent of your sins, Luke 13, 5. You need to confess His name in the hearing of others, Matthew 10, 32 and 33. And you need to be baptized for the remission of sins, Acts 2, 38. Tonight, if you need to do that, don't hesitate, don't procrastinate. If you have become a Christian, but you have wandered away from the safety of the fold of God, you've tried to go it alone, you perhaps have forgotten of the power of the Word. I hope tonight you've been reminded of that power. Don't you want to come back and base your life again squarely upon it? If we could pray for you and with you, we would certainly enjoy doing that and be our honor to do it. Tonight, if we could be of assistance in either of these ways, please let us know in what way we could help while together we stand and while we sing.